Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get insight into the recovery of the Marshall Fire by speaking with a city leader in Phoenix, Oregon, which experienced that state's most destructive wildfire in 2020. I've experienced hurricanes, I've experienced floods. This really, I mean, is what's devastating. And we hear more about a prospective bill aimed at enshrining reproductive health care rights in the state. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. In September 2020, the Almeida Fire decimated around 2,400 homes in southern Oregon's Rogue Valley and killed three people. Like Colorado's Marshall Fire, it was the most destructive in state history, driven by unusually fast winds through the towns of Phoenix and Talent. Now more than a year into its recovery, residents of Phoenix have started to see a degree of normalcy return. We're joined now by Eric Swanson, city manager of Phoenix, Oregon, to hear how his city's fire experience could inform recovery efforts in Louisville and Superior. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. I, again, hope I can shed some light on our experience and, and hopefully you know, help the folks out there in Colorado. Absolutely. I'd like to start with just a brief recap of what happened during the 2020 Almeida fire. Where did it ignite? How did it spread? Yeah, it happened uh, quite a bit uh, south of us, probably 14, 15 miles. The actual burn scar area was about a 14 uh, by two mile burn scar area near the city of Ashland. And then uh, over the course of the, started in the morning, over the course of the day, it uh, arrived in, it burned north with prevailing southerly winds up to 60 mile an hour wind gusts, then pushed the, the fire north through the cities of talent and then phoenix and also a significant amount of unincorporated jackson county and those strong winds were a common element with the marshall fire it was especially devastating because it happened in a heavily populated area more than a thousand homes and structures were destroyed one person died and another is still missing did the almeida fire also hit a more populated area yeah, I think the I think the urban interface nature of this of this wildfire uh, was was significant, and I think you know that's what caused the extensive amount of damage to property. Um, and so I think yeah, very similar. As we mentioned, nearly twenty four hundred homes and structures were lost in the Almeida fire, and that's across multiple communities in Jackson County. I understand the towns of Talent and Phoenix were most impacted. How did the fire hit Phoenix specifically? Well, it's like a lot of things, you know, I've been I've been in city management uh, for 35 years and I, I've experienced hurricanes, I've exper- experienced floods. This uh, really, I mean, is was devastating. People lost their homes, uh, often affected probably the poorest part of our community, the most elderly part of our community. You know, thankfully, through the efforts of our first responders, we had a um, a really, you know, I think is as best we could given our circumstances, given, you know, the amount of the, the heat and just the wind gusts and, and, you know, just the climate change aspect of this, I think really, you know, affected the, the, the you know, our efforts to 
to get everybody out. I think we did a good job at that. But the devastation, again, impacted a lot of homes, a lot of folks that are, you know, the least able to deal with such a such a tragic event. And what do you think about how the evacuation went? Do you wish anything had been different with it? You know, I think uh, in retrospect, there's a couple things that we can always, you know, improve improve upon. And one of them is just exercising these plans that we have. And again, difficult um, scenario um, because, again, unpredictable. There were no warnings, you know, like other weather events or disaster events. Sometimes with hurricanes and tornadoes, you get warnings and you're able to prepare. This one was very different. But I think exercising, I think uh, more often um, in, in, you know, discussing those uh, plans that we have um, is important. And I think the citizen alert, um, I think, is another another tool um, that we could could utilize more. um, And that's the opt in system where citizens can um, connect their cell phones typically um, or the communication devices to a centralized uh, uh, evacuation or uh, communication uh, tool then that will allow us to send out communications more effectively. Uh, and I think that's something we, we can really improve on as well. I understand that most homes lost in the Almeida fire were mobile homes, about 75% of them. Um, in Phoenix, 284 of the nearly 600 structures destroyed were mobile homes. You mentioned this before, um, but did you see the fire impacting some groups of people, uh, low-income communities of color, more than others? Yeah, I think we I think we found out a lot through this process of who what was impacted, and as you mentioned, um, uh, the the various groups, and you know, again. These also are the groups that typically don't have, you know, home insurance or the insurance for something like that to replace in today's economy with limitations on, you know, uh, some of these mobile homes and in terms of construction materials, those kind of things, the supply chain issues that, you know, they, we face a, a much different challenge in terms of affordable housing. And you know we already we already had an affordable housing problem. We had a, a problem with you know the availability of affordable housing or just housing in general, which I think is being seen across the nation. So this this event only made it worse. And so it was really important that we work with those mobile home parks because typically it's one owner, and working with them on on a on a process to rebuild. And I think we've been relatively successful in that in that arena, given all the constraints and challenges of supply supply chain. But we are working closely with them and doing what we can, coordinating with uh, state uh, officials and federal officials on how we can uh, build back with uh, providing options for some more affordable housing. I want to ask more about the housing challenges you faced, because one of the big issues facing Superior and Louisville right now is that the supply of available housing is incredibly tight. It was, you know, before the fire. um, And certainly, uh, you know, it's very strained right now. Uh, Have you been able to find solutions? Well, I think I think the biggest challenge initially um, from the fire was the cleanup. Um, And you know, again, that's another challenging kind of uh, effort. I, I'll, I'll have to give 
really some kudos to our state officials who stepped in and worked with FEMA in terms of coming up with a, a, a financial solution to the cleanup. So in other words, you know, when you have a, a fire of this intensity that, that burns and basically you lose everything, it, it leaves behind a lot of hazardous materials. And so to even consider rebuilding, you have to have a really good cleanup effort uh, ongoing. And I think we came up with a, a solution that involved uh, Oregon Department of Transportation and FEMA who were basically paying uh, for the entire cost of the cleanup, which I think helped with uh, the rebuild effort and affordable uh, housing type issues. In other words, the property owners who opted into this system of allowing the state to come in and clean and get a clean bill of health on the property, I think really advanced a lot of the effort. As you can see in our statistics, we've, we've had a huge percentage, a high percentage of our residents who have indicated a willingness to rebuild and are in the rebuilding process, but it takes time and, and effort. And so what we did is, again, we got some financial assistance from the state to really up upsize our community development department so that people could come in with their plans and you know that whole rebuilding process could go as efficiently as quickly as possible and so that's that's where we focused our effort in terms of of, of housing and in the rebuild process and specifically the mobile home mobile home parks one of the larger ones is actually owned by a national corporation and uh they've been you know really busy with putting together the infrastructure uh, to to uh, rebuild, uh, you know, over 200 homes, uh, mobile homes, which is going to be a significant uh, plus for for the community. We're speaking with Eric Swanson, city manager of Phoenix, Oregon, where a wildfire devastated and destroyed hundreds of homes in 2020. Now, in wildfires, people don't just lose their homes. They lose everything they own, and they lose stability as well. I'm wondering how has Phoenix helped people restore their lives outside of just, uh, you know, rebuilding physical structures? Well, you know, that's a good question. It's a good point. And I think there's a certain amount of post-traumatic stress that we're all dealing with. I mean, if, if, to be honest, I mean, this was a significant event. A lot of people, as you mentioned, when you when you uh, lose a home like and in, in, you know overnight you know literally uh, within a day um, it's it is a, a tremendous tragedy and there are um, you know there are just implications that we could talk about forever but I think again um, we met uh, pretty regularly we we tracked um, the uh, rebuild process um, we you know, we got reports on how the cleanup process was going. We, you know, spent a lot of time with our state officials, our federal officials, and obtaining kind of resources to rebuild. We lost a, um, a part of that. We lost a lot of city infrastructure. We lost a playground. It was important for us to, to move forward with that process in terms of replacing that, that playground so that kids could have some sort of sense of normalcy coming back to a park and being able to to have a playground um, that, that, that was lost. And now we, through the efforts of the state and, and feds are now gonna be rebuilding and opening this spring. And so I think just those are the kind of things um, that we try are trying to do to try to bring back again, some sense of normalcy, but we know this is, this is not a sprint. This is, this is a marathon. It's gonna take uh, several years for us to get 
even closer, close to where we were before in terms of, you know, structures, population, uh, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we looked at too, that we, we made a change to encourage more housing to be built was to allow for housing, uh, a mix of housing in our commercial areas, um, in our, uh, where we've in, in past in our previous land use ordinance only allowed for commercial buildings uh, along our main street. And so we opened that up to allow a mix, a mixed use uh, approach. And that has been received very well from our development community. There are plans underway right now to build some apartments with some commercial uh, commercial development. And so we look forward to that. And I think that was a, a, a strategic move that, that we took uh, early on in the process, recognizing that we need to find ways to get uh, developers and investment in housing in Phoenix. Yeah, it sounds like you're not just rebuilding structures exactly as they were before the fire. You're kind of taking a fresh approach here. Yeah, and, and rec- recognizing too, you know, Main Street, it doesn't look like it has, you know, in, in the past, you know, uh, impacts like Amazon and those kind of things. You know, we had to, had to look look at what are what are the realities of rebuilding uh, commercial in a small town like Phoenix. We are just about four weeks past the Marshall Fire in Colorado. I think Thursday is going to mark one month. It still feels very fresh. It's been nearly a year and a half since the Almeida Fire. When do you think recovery will feel like it's finished? And and what does that look like to you? When we get to a point where I think that we are issuing more certificates of occupancy, you know, if you, if you look at the you know, the process to get building permits and the inspections and, you know, everything that goes into that. I think once we get to a point where we start issuing more certificates of occupancy, that then we'll, we'll start to, to see that. I mean, we're already, we already are experiencing that. We, you know, we had uh, one of our counselors uh, lost their home, you know, one of our employees lost their home. And I think, you know, just experiencing that through, through their efforts and hearing um, kind of the the positives that they're they're expressing in terms of seeing their neighbors, you know, that their neighborhoods are kind of going where they have their neighbors back and they're communicating again. They're part of part of the city. They're not in some sort of uh, temporary housing. It's those kind of stories that I think once we hear more and more of those, I think we'll feel like, hey, we are making some progress. But we recognize too that that we we're, we're still we're still in the middle of it, and we still need to, you know, do what we can um, to to try to support that support our citizens in that. And I'm not sure if anyone has reached out to you, um, but I'm wondering what advice you have for leaders and for residents in Superior and Louisville right now. I think, and I and I did speak with uh, somebody, some of the officials there, and they are concerned. I could I could see kind of similar, you know, kinds of you know, what do we, you know, where are we at? What are we doing? You know, and I, you know, as as I was able to to communicate with those uh, folks from Louisville and Superior, the, the the elected officials, you know, giving them some sort of a, a ray of hope in terms of, you know. Uh, of the rebuild process and seeing how things can get resolved. But I think it's, I think it's like anything else. It's, uh, you know, people are, people are want to help. And that's what you learn in any disaster. You see the really positive sides of people in terms of their reaching out 
Um, and, you know, we've been able to, I think, um, you know, given the, the event, uh, get some really extraordinary resources from our feds, um, from the state, but you got to ask and you got to do it in a way that's coordinated and you're all communicating. So I, you know, I recommended that they, as we did, you know, we had, you know, regular Zoom meetings with all the partners, I mean, um, that would, you know, give updates on cleanup, on rebuild. After, I mean, the, it was a forum to bring these issues because there's going to be a lot of issues that fall through the cracks. And I think if there, if, if, if you can organize yourselves again in this, in, in federal, you know, FEMA, state, OEM, that's Office of Emergency Management, sorry for the acronyms. But anyway, and even at the local level, you know, there are private, you know, there are private sources of funding that we were able to obtain that allowed us to put together a proposal to the state legislature that we were able to get $13.6 million to rebuild our fire station, police station, and city hall. Um, that's just one example. I think also looking at your utilities, your water utilities and infrastructure, there's a real push even, you know, outside of this for cities to, to look at, you know, uh, infrastructure um, in, in some of the federal funding that's, that's coming out of, uh, of, out of Washington right now. I mean, these are all, again, uh, resources that I think are important, but you have to coordinate, you have to, you have to ask, I think you have to understand um, that it's really going to take those kind of efforts, you know, trying to mitigate uh, with some, some investment in your infrastructure for the next event. And uh, I think that's, that's the key. Eric Swanson is the city manager of Phoenix, Oregon. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Parents, uh, again, given the circumstances, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're having this conversation, but I appreciate the opportunity to maybe share some things uh, that'll help the folks out there in Colorado. And uh, definitely my thoughts are, are with you. Listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Extensive legal challenges are playing out over abortion access on a national level, with the Supreme Court considering two cases that have the potential to overturn or dramatically weaken the landmark abortion ruling Roe v. Wade. Colorado lawmakers are expected to consider a bill this session that would secure reproductive rights at the state level. To learn more about the Reproductive Health Equity Act, or RIA, we're joined by Dusty Gurule, the president and CEO of Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, or CALOR. Dusty, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. I want to start with an opinion article that you recently co-authored in Colorado Newsline. In it, you say, we are in a state of emergency for reproductive rights and justice. What are the major challenges uh, that you see right now nationally and here in Colorado that you're focused on right now? Okay, so just a little bit real quick about um, Color. So we've been working 23 years, uh, this is our 24th year of existence, um, to ensure that our community's voice is not left behind in policymaking, decision-making um, at all levels. And so, you know, for us, the Supreme Court 
um, cases around Roe are just the tip of the iceberg. The ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson is, as you know, expected to be handed down in June of this year. And um, a lot of, you know, reproductive rights and justice folks are, we're expecting it to effect, effectively overturn Roe. And if Roe is overturned, 24 states are poised to outright ban abortion despite public opposition to do so, which Colorado, you know, we've polled time and time again, not just Latino community. We did a really intense poll last year with some of our strategic partners to really gauge and ensure again that our community's voice is part of this decision-making process. And time and time again, our community overwhelmingly say they, you know, they, they support the need to expand and protect access to reproductive health care. So can you tell us about the Reproductive Health Equity Act? What would it do? This bill, which um, is yet to be introduced, um, but essentially it would modernize Colorado statute to protect reproductive rights as a fundamental right. Um, and having access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care, including contraception and abortion, helps ensure that people can control their own bodies. Um, their lives and their futures. And we know that that's like such a strong economic justice component, right? If you can't determine when, if, when, and how, um, that has ramifications on your on your entire life, not just future, but present. Um, and so essentially the bill would also ensure and establish that every individual individual has a fundamental right to choose or refuse contraception, which again, we need to make sure that everything's available so pe people can make their own decisions. It will also establish that every individual who becomes pregnant has a fundamental right to choose to continue pregnancy or give birth or to have an abortion, which is essentially, again, the full range of decision-making. And this one is really important for me, I think, and a lot of other folks, but th this essentially would establish that a fertilized egg embryo or fetus does not have independent rights under the laws of the state. And we know time and time again, there are ballot uh, measures that come to, to the ballot to restrict and outlaw abortion. Every legislative session, there are bills that are introduced by the other side um, who are continuing to try to restrict and outlaw abortion in our state. And it's interesting that no law currently in Colorado protects the right to or access to abortion services. And it sounds like this will uh, will enshrine that. What kind of support does the bill have? And do you know when it will be introduced? We're told it will be introduced um, early next month. We are sponsors. We have amazing champions, um, Representative Froelich um, and Representative Danae Esgar in the House and Senator Julie Gonzalez in the Senate. Um, have been doing amazing, amazing work along with both Cobalt and Colod's um, policy and lobby teams. Um, but we have full support of the, um, the Democratic caucus in the House um, with the exception of one member who hasn't signed on. Um, are, we have the, the majority of the Democratic um, senators in the Senate, including the um, uh, we don't have the Senate president's support, but we have the majority um, leader's support. And the Women's Caucus of the House has made this a priority bill. Um, and so we're working with other um, caucus members in the, the Capitol, both the Latino Caucus and the African-American Caucus to continue to um, 
build the support and the momentum. And, you know, we're working 24 hours a day to just ensure that this, um, this is, this is the reality in our state. Well, just briefly, what do you want people to know about this effort in the current environment, you know, nationally and here in Colorado? I mean, I would say, as I mentioned, you know, that Roe, it must be protected, of course, but, you know, the legality of it is never enough. And so we want to be proactive to make sure that pol- that we're creating policies um, that free abortion from unnecessary legal restrictions, that we make it available and affordable, and let all people know, you know, that they are trusted to make their own pre- pregnancy decisions. Um, and that it's healthcare, right? We don't restrict other healthcare decisions that other people make. Um, and so this should not be any different. Dusty Gurule is the president and CEO of Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, or Color. Dusty, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. And we are here if people have questions. Like we, you know, we are committed to ensuring again that everyone in our state um, can live a safe, healthy, self-determined um, life. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll check in on the state of Colorado schools in this latest wave of COVID and hear about education issues lawmakers are likely to address this session. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.